This episode of Lord Have Mercy is brought to you by Noelle Hair Serum, managing the many textures of you one natural drop at a time. Noelle is superfood for your hair, and now you can get your first bottle of Noelle with 10% off and free shipping. Just use the coupon code HAIRSUPERFOOD when you visit noellehair.com. That's N-U-E-L-E hair.com. Don't forget, Hair Superfood. You are listening to Lord Have Mercy, a podcast about God, sex, and the Bible. I'm your host, Crystal Cheatham. Today, I'm interviewing Lindsay Godwin, who is the Assistant Director of the Carpenter Program on Religion, Gender, and Sexuality at the Vanderbilt School of Divinity. She is particularly interested in exploring the intersections of sexuality and faith within the framework of decision-making relationships, community norms, practices, and ethics. She has developed and implemented faith-based sexual health curriculums for congregations and communities, and is one of the reasons why I decided to speak with her today. She's been working with students at the Vanderbilt Divinity School, and I couldn't wait to get her on the podcast to talk about her work, about the leadership, and about steps she's taking post-election. And I give you Lindsay. Um, in my last interview, I got to talk to Deborah Jian Lee, um, uh-huh. who wrote Rescuing Jesus. Um, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. And she was amazing. But I guess for the first time, really discussed how um, Christianity and social justice kind of go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And like, here you are pretty much like the embodiment of that. <laughs> I am one of many embodiments of it. How about that? Yeah. No, it's quite amazing. The stuff that you get. What else are you working on? stuff through Vanderbilt Divinity School. Um, last week, we did two kind of amazing, not amazing events, but really cool events. Um, so on Wednesday, a group of students helped coordinate what they're calling rehearsal for the return. And so we uh, used sort of um, a an adaptation of the theater of the oppressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, to have people practice conversations with their family around really controversial things. So we did Black Lives Matter. We did LGBT stuff. um, We did some stuff around uh, Trump sort of mixed within that um, so that folks could actually sort of practice how they might show up with their family and try and figure out, like, how do I say things when I when my anxiety and all of the ways that I've been trained up to be a good person, particularly for white folks, like what it means to be a good, like nice upstanding white person. Um, but for all those things, like how do I push back, but how do I do it in a way that is also about maintaining relationships? Because knowing that one conversation over Turkey is not going to change. So you are encouraging people to like actively, go into the Thanksgiving spirit with the being commissioned to speak to their like white or, or, you know, (laughs) conservative family members. Yes. I love that being commissioned. Yes. And I will say, this is one of those awesome things that I get to do where like students came to me with the idea and they're like, how do we do this? Or like they already had some of the pieces going and I just got to be part of it Mm -hmm. um, and help to guide some pieces of it. Yeah. Um, So like, there are some amazing, amazing students who are making this happen. And I got to be like, yes, I'm going to co-sponsor. And here are some things to think about. And here are some additional resources that might be helpful. Let's go. Yeah. 
So. That's amazing. So this this episode is actually going to air on Thanksgiving. Like, what are what are some of the tips that you would suggest listeners do? Yeah. So I think maybe two or three things that really uh, seemed really important as we were doing the work. Um, so one, trying to tell, like, trying to make it personal. So like, why do you care about this? Mm -hmm. um, and in part, that makes it it doesn't make it a sort of a war of facts as if bigotry is like a fact that somebody yeah. just gets to hold on to. Right. Like, um, but it's like, I care about these people. These are my friends. These are my family. These are whomever. Like that's, that's actually what I've started to say a lot of like mm -hmm. people that I love dearly are being threatened. Yeah. People who I consider family have already experienced this yeah. violence. Like, um, so trying to, sort of figure out how you fit into the story mm -hmm. and how to tell it that way. Um, that seemed really important for all of us as we were figuring it out because every time we started to go down the road of like, here are all the facts. Here's yeah. the reality of, uh, you know, police brutality and how specifically black folks and brown folks get targeted. Um, the folk who, the people who are playing the like sort of immovable bigot mm -hmm. um, that they just like, presented an entirely different round of facts, right? They're like, yeah. well, these are my facts. This is my world. Yeah. Um, so that was a piece of it. Um, a big piece was also like the reality that you're going to hit a wall with somebody and you may have to have the same conversation over and over and mm, over again. And like right. that hits home so much with me and my family. Like mm. my parents and I have been having the exact same conversations for 12 years. And sometimes it feels like nothing's changed. Mm. Um, because you're way me, more liberal than your parents. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Um, so much so. Um, and uh, it's funny because, like, when I go home, I feel like the most radical human on the face of the planet, which is not yeah. true. But when I'm, like, in radical organizing circles, I'm like, I'm... Need to learn so much. Yeah, I'm I know. So, I'm not here yet. <laughs> yep. So yep. much. All the things. Yeah. Uh, sort of being willing to say and see like the wall, you're going to hit the wall. And sometimes the best thing you can do is just to continue to be like, I still am not okay with this, or I still disagree, or I still push back against this. Yeah. Um, because that conversation may take weeks or months or years. Yeah. Um, and what the things that I have read post election in particular, focused on like how white folks need to show up is that like our job is to do that work mm -hmm. right to like to be in the hard relationships and not walk away because it's hard because that's where stuff has to change yeah so so yeah. there's like two camps about like this whole um thanksgiving discussing things with your your you know bigoted uncle bob it's mm -hmm. like should you show up and just be the asshole in the room you know because <laughs> and be faced with those tough decisions or should you just save yourself and just not go just like not mm -hmm. fucking go and from what I've heard people say on you know the other side is like people of color immigrants um anybody on like whoever has checked the other box on a government yeah. form these are the people who don't have the luxury anymore you know so now mm -hmm. we are like depending on um white people 
basically mm-hmm. to rein in their white people, whereas it mm-hmm. used to be. And I heard this on See Something, Say Something when they were like, you know what? You guys used to tell us to rein in our, our Muslim brother, brothers and sisters. Like we had to go and talk to them. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know that like black people are, are always blamed for the other black people right. who, are, who are, you know, who don't have the resources and are committing large crimes. And mm-hmm. it's like, it's like now it's actually flipped <laughs> right. the other way around. And it's like, hey, you guys actually you guys actually need to go and talk to your relatives. You just can't sit there and be quiet. But, right. you know, hopefully there's not like explosions all over Thanksgiving. What are your students hoping to achieve or what do you want them to achieve? Like the election's over, like it's yeah. fucking done. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are a couple of things I've that I have read or heard lately that have been really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, actually I pulled it up. There was an article in The Root by David J. Leonard. And uh, he specifically says that white anti-racists must be stone catchers for oppressed people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, in terms of my reproductive freedom stuff, I love the metaphor or sort of like looking at the story of Jesus uh, stepping in to the, uh, the stoning of the adulterous woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just in case somebody in your wonderful podcast has not thought about this story much. Yeah. Give it to us. Uh, <laughs> so Jesus is hanging out with some Pharisees and some other sort of high level Jewish dudes. And they're asking him questions and sort of poking at him, um, which is typical for biblical stories and the way we hear things. Right. Yeah. And um, they bring forth this woman who they say they caught in adultery. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple things there. Right. One, it's just the woman. There's no one else. <laughs> There's no. So. Yeah, she, apparently she was adulterating herself. You know? Right, right. Yeah. Which, I mean, I guess is could be a punishable offense, but that's not <laughs> typically how it works. Right. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's a problem there. Yeah, where's the dude? Where's the dude? It <laughs> takes two to tango. At least right. two. Right. And, and outside of the fact that we're not even talking about the fact that we're going to stone the person who has the least social capital. Least in this situation, mm-hmm. right? Like she could have just as easily been being raped or experiencing sexual violence, mm-hmm. and we're gonna stone her because that's what was happening, right? Mm-hmm. So they bring bring her, and uh, they're like, "Jesus, what should we do? The text says uh, the law says we can stone her," and Jesus like does some really sort of strange things. He like draws in the dirt for a while. He yeah. stands sort of with her. Um, historically, uh, what I understand is that they actually, if they're going to stone her, they would have like buried her so that her head was, her head and her shoulders were exposed. Um, Whoa, that is yeah. sinister. It's awful, right? Like this isn't just like you can hit any per- any place on a person's body. It's like so. I've heard different understandings of that, but that's historically what I understand stoning to be at that the specific that time is of nuts. that text. Right. And so Jesus is like drawing in the dirt. We don't know what he's doing. And he looks up at all these people and he says, uh, basically, like, the, whoever of you 
has no sin, you can cast the first stone. Mm-hmm. And interrupts this process. And one by one, they ultimately go away. And Jesus tells yeah. the woman to go forth mm-hmm. and sort of allows her to, to exist. And without a ton of judgment, he says something along the lines of sin no more, but not, Yeah, it's not like a lecture. It's not a, you know, this big huge oh you're an evil human and you're gonna burn in hell like it's none of the things that we typically hear yeah um and so i i love specifically for my white students the thought of like how do we how do we stand up as stone catchers um alongside and when asked for asked by the folks who are calling us in right yes that's just so much better than wearing a safety pin i'm sorry (laughs) Right. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it, it's more along the lines of like folks who are talking about like, we need people who are accomplices, not allies. Um, so the idea of that active action taking when folks, even when folks aren't present, right? Like you're disrupting white supremacy, you're disrupting uh, homophobia and transphobia wherever you see it. Mm-hmm. And that that is the work of, that is the work of being a faithful Christian, at least in a progressive and queer way, in my way. No, <laughs> my yeah. Mind. It's this, it's the act of like spending your privilege. So like you have a privilege and you're, and you're going to, so you're obviously going to end up in those situations where you're standing amongst a bunch of people um, who all happen to share the same skin tone as you or the same religion. And that's where those, those, those very um, sad jokes start, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the Mm -hmm. racist jokes or, you know, you know, making fun of people just because they are the other, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's, that's the job to pick up and catch the stones. Actually, Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that in itself is still terrifying. You know, people Mm -hmm. who do that have to be very brave, you know, but we need them to, we need them to speak up. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it is still, it's the bravery is because it's still pushing back against white supremacy. And as Robin Henderson Espinosa would say, logics of dominance. So these ideas of like, what is mm. dominant, what will dominate us and what the idea of like a singular perfection that we're supposed to be obtaining is like white folks still have to push back against it, but folks of color, trans folks, queer folks, immigrants, Muslims have been pushing back against that White supremacy so that Christians, right? Like it's an, it's an everyday ingrained battle. Yeah. And so we absolutely have to find whatever courage, whatever bravery we have to join in that. I don't know the title of it, but don't you work with another like white group standing up for black lives? So, um, I, so there, are you thinking about surge? Yeah. Racial justice. So I don't specifically work with surge, but I have partnered with surge on a couple of different things. So, um, one of them actually being last week, uh, we had, um, Rob Keithen who was in town. He's a you minister, Mm -hmm. um, who, uh, led us in a conversation around messy theology and using our theology to disrupt the ways that white supremacy shows up in, in our worlds. Yeah. And so, um, part of what we talked about is like white supremacy sets up this, I'm going to call it a shrine of the idea of a singular perfection. Like there's a thing that can be reached and your job as a white person in particular is to seek to reach it yeah. and 
that means putting everybody in a hierarchy. And at the top of that uh, sort of theoretical, <laughs> violent idea of perfection is cis maleness. So like a, mm-hmm. a specific understanding of maleness, of whiteness, of um, upper middle classness. Yeah. Um, and it's basically like how this upcoming administration is functioning right like of christianness like that idea and anyone who's not god yeah is not feeding that yeah is to be used so what does surge actually stand for showing up for racial justice and what is it that they do like what's their mission so um the way I understand it is that, um, and they're working on a sort of a new platform right now. So that one, it's a place for white folks, sort of like grassroots education for white folks to mm. start to better understand and explore the ways that white supremacy shows up I'm in their lives. I'm so life. glad that this exists, especially like in the South in Nashville, like it's giving me tingles, <laughs> you know, like yeah. after watching CNN, like in the morning, I'm just like, fuck, I don't want to live my day anymore. But this, yeah. like, this is making me happy. Um, so, so doing the work of, um, sort of exploring their own stuff, figuring out like, cause you're inundated with it. I mean, you know, this, we are all inundated with it, but part of the blinders of whiteness is that you don't see it. Yeah. Like that's the way it's supposed to function. You're not supposed to like unveil it. Um, so there's a piece of unveiling. Um, and then there is a piece of, um, action specifically in, concert with and as an in accountability to in relationship with um leadership of color so whether that's partnering with black lives matters or workers dignity which is an organization that specifically does um workers rights for immigrants and undocumented folks here in nashville and across the country um or other or muslim groups or whomever like how do you show up in the ways that you that are accountable in a relationship to folks. Yeah. As opposed to just like white folks being like, Oh, we've got the solution. Let's go do the thing. <laughs> that doesn't always work out so well. No, <laughs> and they'll get called out real quick. Right. And be embarrassed and then probably right. not want to try again. Right. And, um, and then doing the reflection work to, to look back on the things that you're learning or the actions that you're taking and be like, all right, so where did we screw up? How do we, understand that we're going to screw up no matter what mm-hmm. like there are going to be times when we do things well and we do don't do things as well but like our job is to keep showing up and keep figuring it out yeah and being in relationship with folks yeah so can uh, yeah just it's so it's a practice you know mm-hmm. it's like you practice medicine this is a practice on um social justice i love exactly. it so much and you know one of the ways whiteness functions is that you're supposed to be a good person that is a thing you can accomplish right yeah um <laughs> But yeah. <laughs> it's actually like not, it's like you've, you will do some bad things. You'll do some good things. You'll do a lot of mediocre things and that's fine. And your job is to keep practicing. I just, I can't wrap my mind around how Christians mm. called themselves and still call themselves Christians while voting for, advocating for, and supporting Trump post um, the election. Mm-hmm. I I mean, to me, and I'm sure to just many people of color, we're just like, how does that fall in line with anything that you guys have been talking about, about Christ's love or about the truth of the Bible? Like, how mm-hmm. how on earth does it all go together? Yeah. 
I've uh, been spending a lot of time reading uh, evangelicals who are countering the Trump vote, which is fascinating um, because I, I don't spend a lot of time in evangelical circles, but mm-hmm. uh, it's fascinating to see other evangelicals be like, we, this, we've screwed this up. Like this is, this is so wrong. Mm-hmm. We're on the wrong track. But I think where the pe- where people feel okay doing it, like people like folks in my family, mm-hmm. um, is that their understanding of Christianity is still connected to connected more to ideas of a Christian empire mm-hmm. and a Christian uh, domination. So, like light oh, on yeah. the hill, right? We are the example. Everyone needs to be like us, and we will we will lead you into that that uh, that version of salvation by owning you, using you, exploiting you. But that's not how we're. It's just like you're you're left. I mean, it's the same thing that justified slavery, right? Yeah, like, and actually, like that that line of thinking is not dying. We and mm-hmm. you know, a part of me is really scared because the way that we are going about. Um, combating that line of thinking is saying, you know, we're people too, care about us too. But the other side, the alt-right and the um, white nationalists, they're thinking, we don't care. You know, like they do not care. Um, I was, I found this article, it was in the New York Times and um, the, uh, the title is alt-right exults in Donald Trump's election with a salute, Heil victory. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing just goes into this this alt-right um, conference that was going on. And during the day, they were kind of like trying to differentiate themselves from the KKK. But like in the evening after most, if not all but one reporter had left, they started to get in like some crazy shit where they were like, um, I'm just going to read it. America was, until this last generation, a white country designed for ourselves and our and our posterity. Mr. Spencer, who's the, mm. the guy who's talking. It is our creation, it is our inheritance, and it belongs to us. To be white is to be a creator, an explorer, a conqueror. A race, <laughs> and he says, but, but, but the white race, he added, is a race that travels forever and upward, on, on an upward path. I mean, I'm not making this up. This is just like, this is shit that they are just feeding people. Mm-hmm. What? And, be- and believe and have built everything on. Like, I don't. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. This No, it's fine. Making the conversation heavier than it should be. But I'm just, I'm just saying like, we're pleading and trying to demonstrate to people that they're not treating us as human, you know, Mm -hmm. like they're not treating us fair. Like we don't get, um, the same, uh, resources that everybody else gets, like their systems of oppression. And we're trying to prove this to people who are denying it, but like, Mm -hmm. but behind the people, the deniers, there's like this whole other group who are like, yeah, that's true. And we want it to stay that way, which is something that I didn't even fathom i thought that the 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 dragon that we were fighting was unbelief <laughs> and right that's not that's that's apparently not it at all <laughs> no it's like the clothing of the dragon yeah. like that's just the like the outer right manifestation or like the low-key manifestation of the dragon <sighs> but the dragon is actually like is active white supremacy yeah is active neo-nazism is active like understanding of like literally seeing human beings and being like, Nope, 
Oh my gosh, guys, I am still fundraising for our Bible app and I'm not going to let it go. Um, we have a week left in the Indiegogo campaign. We only have $705 and their quest was $10,000. And I'm not giving up hope. I think that we can do this and I really need your help to get out there and put your money into the Indiegogo so that I can continue to build our Bible app, which is going to revolutionize the way that we do church, build community, worship, relate to each other, and all that jazz. I mean, I'm trying to build an app that will take church and the idea of who God is and the idea of what religion really is out of the right-wing, alt-right grasp and into the mainstream lane where you and I exist, where you and I exist, where we get to talk about what really matters to us, where we get to have devotionals about things that focus on our personal identities. That's what I'm trying to do. And I want you to be a part of that and I really need your help. So if you're able to give five, 10, 15, $20, Anything you can give will definitely help. Um, and on that, we're actually still looking for devotionals. So if you have an idea of an inspirational thought that you would love to try and pull into a devotional, just submit something, submit anything, and I will work with you to create a written piece that will change lives, not just here in America, but across seas where access to community, access to LGBT people, access to all of these things that you and I kind of take for granted here in America, they can read this. You know, I'm creating this app for that kid in middle America who has, you know, horrible anti-gay, anti-everything parents. Um, and it's just looking for something to impact their life so that they know that their higher power loves them. And if you can write that message, please go online to crystalcheatum.com and submit something, anything. I'm asking for Bible light meditations. I'm asking for Bible free meditations. I'm asking for the full Monty, you know, so if you have a, uh, a devotional that you can submit that also has Bible verses attached to it, that that's, that'll be great. But you know, I really think that we can do something here. I really think that through popular education, by coming together, we can create something. So if you're able to donate money, please do so. If you're able to donate words, please do so. Either way, I totally need your help. So if you're going to go to Indiegogo, it's Indiegogo. Um, look for our Bible app. It's the purple one. Um, you can also go to my website and read more about it if you're just quite not, not quite sure. But either way, come on guys, let's fucking do it. So no, you you work at you work at Vanderbilt and um, when I think of Vanderbilt I, and and I know some of the people who have studied there um, and they're all just like super smart super quick and and understanding this relationship between um, God and spirituality and the human race um, in a very different way than you know pastors and ministers who came before them in a very um, evolved way. And it just gets me so excited. And so when you are teaching classes or when you're in front of those people, um, what do you see? Do you see a group of people who are actually going to be able to be future thought leaders of America and handle some of this shit that you know we've now unleashed? It's one of the right questions, right? Like, are we, are we actually training folks to be able to do this? Um, I will tell you what gave me what has given me heart and hope um, in the last two weeks? Tell me. <laughs> um, I'm Please, sorry, I'm like my, I was like, no. I didn't even know. 
Okay. Keep it together. Keeping it together. Kristen. No, I need it. Like my, like, I feel like my <laughs> veins are so dry right now. I'm just like, please give me, give me life. Yeah. Like I'm just, I need yeah. help. Um, I am seeing more people, people who were sort of like, yeah, justice is important to me. I'll find some ways to occasionally pull this message in my pulpit or whatever. Um, like, I'll talk about some of these things, but I won't really probably be one of those people who takes a stand, except maybe occasionally or on one issue. I've seen a bunch of those people uh, across race, ethnicity, um, class, gender, et cetera, um, sort of pull up short and look at themselves and be like, nope, this is not, this is, that's not enough. Mm-hmm. and start to show up in places and ask questions mm-hmm. and seek information um, and knowledge and skills and tools to, to do more. Yeah. Um, and so I am, I am hopeful in that. Um, How do you see them I, doing this? Um, so showing up to, to like two events that we had last mm-hmm. week, we had, um, and you were talking about surge and I wasn't at this meeting cause I was at another thing um, around messy theology and, trying to disrupt whiteness. Um, there were like 500 people at the surge meeting last Thursday in Nashville. Um, so people who are way behind people who have a lot to learn like myself, but folks who know that they have to stand with folks that like having folks of color as friends is not sufficient enough Mm -hmm. anymore or being like, I voted for Hillary is not sufficient Mm -hmm. enough. Like, no. <laughs> um, and that you've got to actively disrupt things. Um, and like, I've got, I have friends who've been telling me about conversations that they've had, they're having that they would have never had before. Yeah. Um, I have, uh, students, I've had conversations with students around that same sort of thing where they're like, I, this thing happened. I knew I needed to say something. So I tried this. It didn't really work, but I tried to say a thing. Yeah. Um, and so there is, for me, there is hope in that, that um, at least for Vanderbilt Divinity School, we can be an incubator of giving, like, sort of injecting people through practice yeah. the more courage and bravery to do more, to act up more. Um, and part of that has also been, like, so last week, um, I don't know if you know about the sanctuary movement, specifically at u- the university and college level. So across the country, um, students are organizing to call their universities and colleges to be sanctuary spaces. Mm. And in that, um, I'm not gonna, I don't have the full list of requirements in front of me, but those sanctuary spaces would mean um, disconnecting completely from any organization that works with um, ICE. So any, so any police force that works with ICE, anything, anyone that would potentially maybe seek Mm -hmm. to come for folks who are undocumented on campus. Um, Also to specifically create um, spaces that will always honor folks who are Muslim um, and not allow a registry, not allow things. Um, And so there's, there are several pieces to the sanctuary movement, but um, last week and a little, it started a little bit the week before, um, the students at Vanderbilt, uh, started to lay out this, um, request of the chancellor by 
interrupting his office and um, leading several uh, strikes and marches that will continue. Yeah. Um, and a bunch of those students were divinity students. Mm. And then when those things were live streamed on Facebook, more folks, especially divinity folks, showed up. Um, and so that's a place where that's happening. Why does that surprise you that some of those were divinity students? It doesn't surprise me. It just, it's, it's, that's a little bit of the hope giving, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so, and also because we have not, I haven't seen for a while that big of a, of a wave, right? I've seen a number of divinity students doing various and sundry things. And there's a handful of folks who show up and do, um, sort of the same handful of folks who show up and do a couple of different levels of action. So some folks who are in, involved in Black Lives Matter, some surge folks, some workers' dignity folks, some um, stuff specifically around um, housing and homelessness. Yeah. Um, but the folks who turned out for that were also new faces. Not all of them, but there were new faces. There was a sort of an increased, an increased number. Mm-hmm. What I see from them is an understanding that that is just one place to show up and that there's so much more to do. Um, but this is one place where they can have an impact right here, right now. Yeah. Um, uh, where can people find you and learn more about you or join in in some of the work that you're doing? Yeah. So um, if folks go, if folks are interested in learning more about the Carpenter Program mm -hmm. and Vanderbilt Divinity School and sort of the stuff that we're doing there. Um, and a lot of that work is public. It's not just for the school. Mm -hmm. So know that it's much broader than that. Um, they can actually just Google Vanderbilt Divinity Carpenter Program, and it'll take you right to our website, mm -hmm. which has some information, including my work contact, which is the easiest way to get a hold of me. <laughs> um, I can also be found on Twitter under Linsbike, L-Y-N-S-V-I-K-E, and Facebook under uh, Lindsay Godwin. But I will admit that on Facebook, I'm a little bit more, um, I, I need to know you in real life to Facebook. <laughs> yeah. That's the easiest way. And like, I love talking to folks. I get emails on the regular. So maybe I'm like, I just want to ask this question. Can you give me some resources? Do you want to talk? So I'm happy to do that. If folks want to do that. Um, let's see. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's the time of the show where you, our listeners, get to ask Reverend Sex your deep, deep questions about God, sex, and the Bible. Do-do-do. Here we go. Okay, this question comes from James in Florida. It reads, Hey there, I heard about your podcast from a friend's Facebook post. Thanks for telling us. I gotta say, I love what you're doing. Great stuff! Exclamation point. I am a youth pastor and I believe one if not two of the teens I work with are dealing with sexual orientation. When sex is brought up to when a sex is brought up, they seem to get flustered. I myself am a gay man, but I have not come out to the church. I believe I would get fired if I did come out. But seeing these kids struggle like this only reminds me of when I was their age and quite honestly, it was such an affliction on my adolescence. Okay. Um, any any advice on what I should do? Oh, James. <laughs> oh. Oh, James. <laughs> yeah. I mean, prayer feels like 
a little too cliche, but also just real. Um, you know, we often say for those who can be out, please be out. And for those of you who can't, we send you our like love and total lack of judgment. And so I feel like that's really important to give grace to folks, um, and to recognize that we still live in a place where it is absolutely not safe for all of us to be out okay. either physically or professionally. Um, what I also think is true, though, is that we each have calls on our life about what we're supposed to do and not do, and that requires a whole lot of soul-searching and a whole lot of conversation with the divine around what our call is to do. So whether James' call in particular is to come out or not come out is a is a very particular and specific question that I would not begin to answer for someone else. I mean, I could talk about that for a while because, I mean, I see both sides of the coin that sometimes you're just not able to. But maybe I rely too much on my personal experience, but I came out in a very tough place, you know, and um, for like, me, it was talk about it. I mean, I came I out mean, I'm curious. I'm sure our listeners are, too. Yeah, I came out um, right after college or and uh, or at the end of my college career to somebody who was my mentor. And, um, you know, because I came out. I was unable to be a performer anymore. So if anybody's been to my website, you see that there's a, an album up there and it's not the first album I've done. And when I left school, I really thought that my, my life was going to be um, one of youth ministry and singing and performing. Um, but once I came out, you know, I was told you can't be on Adventist stages anymore, you know? And so my, the, what I had to work on and deal with then and what is what I am still um, working through and talking about uh, was how uh, is how hard it was, you know, um, to grapple with my identity and my religion and my faith and my family and my friends and my networks um, all at the same time. And I grew immensely. And if I had not come out, if that had not happened, you know, would I be here doing this podcast? Would I um have have you know traveled the u.s speaking to schools about their um anti-queer policies you know um and so i just i think that it's safer of course to stay inside but i think that you cause you create more good when you come out well what made you decide to come out You know what? Being, and I'll just say gay, being gay wasn't um, something I dealt with when I was a kid. Yeah, I had inklings, but it was a really, really slow burn. And um, when my father passed away when I was 15, I just stopped thinking about sexuality altogether. And so um, by the end of my college career, it was apparent. It was just like a light switch went, light switch went off and it was like, oh shit that's what that is <laughs> and there was no denying it and I mean I'm a lot like you like when I know something I share it there's no way I'm not going to be able to share the thing that I love and, and am passionate about and I loved it I loved knowing that I was attracted to women because it made so much sense and so I just couldn't imagine doing um 
standing up, I mean, and singing because I was a musician and that's how I, I spoke to God was creating music and creating lyrics. And I was like, I can't imagine getting up in front of an audience singing and telling personal stories and not telling them about my orientation. And so for me, it was kind of just like, you know, the bubbling up of a volcano and spilling over. It was not going to stay inside of me. Yeah. And that I think is the struggle that so many of us face. Um, around that bubbling up right and so I do think it absolutely is painful and um, harmful to our spirits to have to keep that which is authentic and true um, inside of us and at the same time I recognize that people are at different places on their journey and there are still places in this country and especially around the world in which death is what comes from being out and so I feel like for me at least what I know to be true about my own life is that I've had the privilege to be able to be out and still be safe. Um, and that comes so much from my ability to pass in all these other ways. Right. And so, um, I have a lot of compassion for people who can't live out the fullness of their identity of who they are and who God is to them and who has got, God has called them to be. But I also think that there is something very real about, you know, it's a particular path where one is willing to start over um, in an entirely different world. Of course. But, you know, what what did you say one time about, you know, being able to pass in such a way that you can um, kind of just blend into certain groups and then be an instigator when it comes to, to uh, talking about um, queer things or diversity or whatever, you know? Um, I just, I feel like people have so much more power than they think they do. And I look at James and I'm like, of course, you know, maybe you have a bit more leverage than you think you do with your job. You know, if you came out, you know, would you be able to help those kids, you know? Yeah, I feel like that's what prayer is about, is I don't think that we can make those decisions. And you and I are pretty loud and bold and convincing people. Yeah. That's part of who we are in the world, right? We're very but loud. He, he's in a teacher position. That's true. That's totally true. But I've seen wonderful teachers who help and encourage people to find their own ways through asking really brilliant questions um, rather than feeling like their responsibility to, is to live the example in terms of um, showing everyone um, what is true for them or what they're their life is all about. In fact, I know, I mean, that there is a line for me between gay and queer in which gay people are, um, this is totally my own reverend sex definition, alba definition of what this, of what this means. So this isn't in any, uh, encyclopedia or dictionary, but, um, the difference for me on that line between gay or lesbian and queer is this one that says, um, Someone who is, who believes I am a youth minister, I am a doctor, I am a social worker, and who I sleep with is my own damn business and happens behind closed doors, and I just want to have a normal life like everyone else, and who I sleep with is nobody's business but my own. I want the same rights as everybody else because I am an individual person or citizen or whatever that categorization is, Um, and then I want to be left alone about the rest of it because it's private. Mm -hmm. Um, is the line 
And for me, I don't know if you've had this experience, but for me growing up, there were people who were Christian who go to, who went to church every Sunday, really believed in the faith, whatever. Um, but that was just a piece of their life. They were also, you know, a dentist or a housewife or whatever. Um, and then there were other people who were like, I am a Christian mother. I am a Christian wife. <laughs> I am a Christian doctor. Yeah. I am a Christian soccer coach. I am a Christian fill in the blank. And mm-hmm. the, and Christian pre- was the prefix to every one of those other identities, which for me says that the lens through which I see the world starts with my faith orientation and looks out from there into all the other realms. And for me, that's what queerness is about. Queerness is about, I am a queer doctor. I am a queer housewife. Mm. I am a queer. And so that orientation for me is really different. Right. And so some people live out their experience through their primary lens being one of, um, one of their identities. And for a lot of us, that's our faith. And for others of us, it's our political analysis around queerness. And that is centers around desire that centers around uh, marginalization and equality that centers around not being the norm that centers around saying, fuck you to the, you know, to Mm -hmm. the hetero centric kind of patriarchal system and says like, no, that entire thing is screwed up and we don't want to be a part of your club. No, thank you. I don't want a white picket fence. Mm -hmm. I want, you know, a purple lawn or whatever it is. But like the idea of that is a difference. Right. And so I think for you and I, when we talk about our faith and our sexuality, that both of those are primary lenses mm-hmm. and we see the world through both of those things. Mm. And so being out and loud and proud is just a central part of how we even exist in the world. And there isn't much of another option. Um, and for others, I feel like that isn't actually their primary identity. It happens to be one of the characteristics. Okay. So in the situation of James, I can see why his sexuality would have taken a back burner to his work and what he gets to do with these teenagers. Um, but I mean, he's not, he's probably prayed a lot about this, but he chose to come to us with this question and he's asking us for advice. Like what should he do when, I mean, what, what do you do when you are shepherding young minds, um, in a, uh, sexually hostile place, um, you know, maybe two kids who, who are, are, have variant, uh, sexualities. Like, what do you do? I mean, I mean, I think there's some basic things, whether or not James's personal life gets involved. Right. So just to be clear, James, if this is, if what you need is a call out to be your most authentic self in the world, let us be the ones to say, by all means, be your authentic self, find the support structures and the safety networks that you need to be okay in the world and be your full authentic self. If you're looking for that, like sign in the darkness, that light on the field, let us be that like lighthouse to say, come on home. We're happy to have you out here in the big old queer gay out club. We would love to have a homecoming for you if you just wanted to let us know the date of the celebration. <laughs> so that's one because there's two pieces, right? There's one about James personal life, right? And authenticity. And that feels like absolutely true. And there are ways to live authentically and be authentic without having to give everybody all of your personal information about who you sleep with and who you desire. That's one piece. The second piece is what do we say to kids? And I think that there's as leaders of faith in communities with young people, it's really important for us to understand our own sexual ethics 
to not shy away from those conversations about bodies and sex and desire, which means a lot of us have a lot of work to do because we've been programmed for a long time around our bodies being sinful and evil and the, a place of desire being lust and all of that terrible stuff. And so one, we have to do our own work. And two, we have to spend a lot of time on where we're going to focus the biblical and the kind of Christian conversations. And for me, starting from the idea as I always start from the idea of the Imago Dei and being made in the image of the divine and what that means to respect our own bodies, to know ourselves deeply, to trust that God made us who we were supposed to be and therefore to be in conversation about what that means for our gender identity, what that means for our sexual desires, to know some real basic facts around sexual health <laughs> feels really important yeah. like understanding and being able to have conversations about what does it mean to get pregnant or what is the STI and how are they transmitted mm -hmm. is just real practical and basic but I think there's a spiritual component of that that folds in the morality piece rather than just simply relying on the idea of like um, you know sex is bad or it's only within the institution of marriage but actually complicating that and being like what does it mean to engage with someone else or your own body sexually that honors and respects that your body and this other person's body or other people's body is sacred mm -hmm. and how do you do that well and that is questions that everyone should be asking regardless of gender identity or sexual orientation mm -hmm. That is just real, there's some real factual yeah. stuff that is mandatory for people who are working with young people or should be, in my opinion. Well, maybe, maybe the answer is, you know, James, it's great that these kids feel, and I'm going to say kids, but I know they're not. Um, it's really good that these kids feel comfortable talking about sex around you and how good of a mentor are you that you actually pick up on little things like that, that, you know, you know, two of your teenagers might actually um, be a little queer, uh, if not trans. And so, you know, my, my hope is that you will go out of your way, go talk to whatever deacon or minister you have to in your church space and say, Hey, we should be having conversations about sex with these kids, you know? And in that you could talk about many of the things that, um, Reverend sex here has been able to highlight, but also you would be able to talk about, um, the spectrum of gender identity and orientation and maybe that way you wouldn't have to come out explicitly uh, to these kids in a way that um, puts in danger your paycheck and your passion um, but does give them the resources that they need because I know you know as a queer person um, in a Christian space not having access to the tools that said that allowed me to know that my God loved me, you know, not having access yeah. to the tools that showed me that there was community for people like me, that yeah. I could be queer, I, that some of my main identities could be queer and Christian, you know, just not knowing that just tore me apart. It tore me apart. Yeah. Um, and so I think that if anything, you need to figure out a way to get these kids the information that they need that will tell them that they're normal and that there are places in the world where they can have community and friends and life abundant that that isn't as stifling and um, as spiritually dangerous as maybe that church has become for them. Yeah, I think it's super, that in terms of that, it's super simple. There's like practical knowledge around mm -hmm. how do I connect these kids? If James can't be the resource for them, where are the resources that they can go? Who are the people that mm -hmm. they can talk to? Local yeah. GSAs, if those exist in the school system mm -hmm. or counselors or welcoming and affirming community centers or other things like that, right? There's a practical information around sexual health. There's practical information around LGBTQIA kind of um, 
resources and places and home spaces. And then the last piece of that feels like a real, the real work of self that makes you not squeamish when talking about sex, not squeamish when talking about God and desire, not apologetic around bodies and sex um, that is just important because kids certainly know if you're uncomfortable, right? And so just being real about about those kinds of things um, as well as asking good questions. Like I just cannot overemphasize our children are brilliant and mm. they we believe that we know what we need and what's best for us when we're adults. And I think that the same thing could be true for our mm. young people if we gave them the space by asking real questions yeah. and open-ended questions without judgment, without, you know, shame or guilt, but rather just were really deeply in relationship with folks and helped adults and children and everybody in between work through what is their sexual ethics and working on that as like, what is your authentic way of how you believe it is right and good to interact with your body and your body with other people's bodies in a what circumstances and context rather than saying here is the only way in which you can be sexual. Here is the only way in which you are morally correct. Here's the only way in which you are reflecting the image of the divine. Yeah. That same message for me always comes back to intentionality and authenticity. And if mm-hmm. we could just encourage our kids and love on them and be proud of them when they are willing to do that work. Um, that's then great. That's, that's such a good amazing. answer. Like, you know, having sitting with those with the youth and having open-ended questions about sex and spirituality and kind of doing some steering when they do get off topic because it is it is my belief and you know maybe I'm wrong and I'm okay with being wrong but I think that teenagers are far more forgiving than than adults when it comes to this stuff I mean you know, when it when it comes to youth and adolescence, I think that, you know, middle schoolers are assholes, but um, high schoolers <laughs> and teenagers, it's true. Ask anyone. Um, I don't sc- know. I don't <laughs> spend a lot of time in middle schoolers. Um, high, schools, high schoolers and teenagers, especially in those small groups of, of youth who have known each other maybe for a couple years, if not longer, who have to go to all of these functions together, you know, whether it's camping or whether it's potlucks, um, they're a, a lot more forgiving with each other. And I think if you start to have those conversations around sex and identity and God and the Bible, um, you will be able to to kind of steer them and hear from them personal experiences that, that what they wouldn't have shared otherwise. Yeah. Um, and a language that is more accepting than, than even you expected. Um, yeah, building relationships with trust, of trust are important all across the age spectrum. And I think you're right. I think there's something... I mean, when I remember adolescence, it felt like every there was a lot of ambiguity about who I was going to be and what did that mean and what I was going to do for work and where I was going to live and all that stuff that may create a little more space to be in between straight and gay or black and white or right and wrong. Uh-huh. And I think that spending time on questions and that ambiguity is um, a really beautiful practice. Yeah. Cheers. Hope that helped. Good luck, James. And I'm sorry we kept calling you James. It looks like your name is Jameson. (laughs) Crystal. It's because I'm mischievous. You've heard it all. You've listened to it all. It's done. Come back later a lot more. Okay, bye.